Good afternoon, everybody. This is Ben Powers coming at you from the Commander's Voice. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Marcus Brotherton. He's the author of Shifty's War, a book that came out about 10 years ago about the famous Shifty Powers, Daryl Powers of the Band of Brothers. But he's also got a brand new book out called Blaze of Light about a Green Beret Special Forces Medal of Honor recipient named Gary Bykirk. And that's it's just a fascinating, fascinating, excuse me, story. And we're going to get into all that today. So, Marcus, welcome. Great to be here, Ben. So uh, my first question is, what got you into writing? Are you a historian who started writing? Are you a journalist? I don't know much about your background. So if you could tell us a little bit about that before we get into the books, I'd love it. Yeah, as I, um, I trained in journalism and I was in a newsroom for five years and uh, it was kind of crazy because it was right at the time when, when the newspaper industry was really taking a dive. So I had a, uh, you know, I was married by then, had a child and, and had a mortgage. And so I started moonlighting in, uh, in the book world and one thing led to another and I just, I built up a lot of contacts and a lot of work. And so I went full-time into books in 05 and have never looked back. That's very cool. What was the first book you worked on? Uh, the, the first military nonfiction book was, was Call of Duty with Lieutenant Buck Compton. And, um, to, to give you just a, a glimpse of how that book came about, I was um, I, I pulled off a, a couple of other uh, full-length biographies by then, but never anything in the military. And, and you got to understand, I grew up in Canada. And so, you know, it's just a different system up there. So one day my agent calls completely out of the blue and he said, Marcus, have you ever seen Band of Brothers? I said, yeah, I love that show. It's great. You know, many series on HBO. He goes, well, Lieutenant Buck Compton lives up in your area and he's interested in writing his memoirs needs a collaborative writer to help him out. Uh, would you be interested in working on this project? I'm like, absolutely. I just sort of instantly blurt my response. Don't give it a second thought. Jump at the chance. I hang up the phone. And then in a quieter moment, I'm like, what have I done? Uh, like, I don't know anything about the military, right? And so I start to sort of research the genre. And I'm, I'm up against, you know, Stephen Ambrose, the, you know, history professor at the University of New Orleans. I'm up against Colonel... Cole King Seed and and just the title Colonel just kind of stops me in my tracks. But fortunately, Buck was just amazing to work with. Very patient guy, very um, just a kind of a benevolent teacher, and just schooled me on on his life and and everything that happened there. And it was kind of good because the questions that I was asking, uh, I think that book was really clear. I think uh, sort of anybody could read it and enjoy it, and, and uh, just a great story there. So that led to everything else. No, that's fantastic. And I found watching interviews with Buck Compton that, granted, you're seeing sort of a lion in winter. And he was, uh, but he came across just so patient and so wise. And I don't know if that was because of his career as a, in law afterwards, and he, he just matured so well. But I was expecting something different, uh, just based off how Neil McDonough played him in the miniseries and I just uh I don't know if you experienced that spending so much time with him uh or were there glimpses of the the young paratrooper lieutenant the young athlete who might have been a little more brash back in the yeah day. so definitely a uh Buck was a uh, kind of a paradoxical guy I mean he was he had he was super super intelligent very intense guy but he presented himself very humble and and very laid back and and he was truly both those things 
um, I mean, he was he, he he just lived this amazing life. He's a child actor with Mickey Rooney. Uh, he he goes to UCLA and he's, he's like a double sport athlete. Jackie Robinson is one of his teammates. Uh, goes in through the war with with the famed band of brothers. Gets a silver star for his actions at at Braycorn Manor. Comes home. He's a uh, detective. Uh, an attorney and a judge he ends up prosecuting Sirhan Sirhan for the murder of Bobby Kennedy. So he's lived just this amazing sort of Forrest Gump life, <laughs> being everywhere, doing everything. And 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 yet you talk to him and he's kind of like, well, you know, I, I was just fair to Midland. I was a fair to Midland baseball player. I was a fair to Midland, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sort of like Dick Winters and, and sort of the be all and end all. Uh, but I did my job. I did my day. Uh, I, I got the chance to, to travel with Buck uh, three times after his book came out, and uh, he was still speaking all over the country well into his late 80s. Uh, he died at age 90. And when he was traveling later in life, he needed a, a kind of, you know, traveling companion to get him through the airports and things like that. And it was it was during those times, we'd be just sitting, waiting for a plane or just hanging out in a hotel room watching Sports Center or whatever. And he would just tell these amazing stories and his memory was so sharp and clear and so smart, but he presented himself so humbly, just the, the epitome of, of walking, walking humbly. That's, that's very cool. So did that lead directly to the opportunity to work with Shifty Powers? Uh, two books came between then. Yeah. Yeah. So I did uh, We Were Live Remain after Buck Compton. And that was just um, when, when Buck did his book, uh, a number of his buddies wanted to write their memoirs as well. And, you know, I talked to my agent about it and um, there, there wasn't sort of enough room in the industry, I think, to do a, a separate book with each guy. And so we ended up doing this compilation memoir. It was like an oral history project uh, with 20 of, of the still living uh, men from Easy Company. And then uh, I had met a number of the adult age children of, of the veterans and, and particularly the, the deceased veterans um, were saying, you know, my dad's got great stories too. And so that led to another book called The Company of Heroes, which was the stories of, of a number of the deceased veterans from the company. No, that's so by the time I'd done that, I thought, wow, I'm done with Band of Brothers. And, um, and, and I didn't, I, like, I love the Band of Brothers and, and they helped me enormously in my career. And uh, yet I didn't sort of want to be sort of pigeonholed into one area. And uh, one day, um, Margo Johnson called me up, who's the daughter of uh, Shifty Powers, and said, you know, we would love to have you uh, write our father's life story. And I, I, I really had to think about it. I called my agent about it. We talked through it. And uh, this is the thing. He's like, my agent is like this cut and dried businessman, no nonsense, dollars and cents guy. And he calls me up like two days later. He goes, Marcus, you'll never believe this, but I had a dream. I had a dream where I saw you doing this book about Shifty Powers, and I don't get dreams <laughs> like that. And, and he's like, you got to do this book. And so I did. So that's how it, it came to be. And uh, they were just tremendous to work with all the way through. So now I've got a ton of questions about Shifty, but since we've talked about uh, in a company of heroes and we talked about uh, We Who Are Alive and Remain, I think both of those projects were tremendous because. You could only get so much in the original Band of Brothers book. Obviously, Stephen Ambrose did an amazing job. And if he hadn't done such a great job, we wouldn't have this body of work today that so many other authors have been able to contribute to. We wouldn't have the miniseries. But other than Winters and maybe a few others, everybody only gets a couple, a couple pages because it's a relatively short book. 
and you know Doc Rowe I think appears in it like on two pages or something like that and he was this significant member of the company so I think it was very cool that these guys who didn't get a lot of time in the miniseries didn't get a lot of press in the original book you were able to tell their stories now there's a gap in my knowledge because I haven't read for example we uh, who are alive and remain but did you find that there was just as rich a vein of material, things that could have been a second miniseries even, that just never made it into the uh, the overall, for lack of a better term, mythology of the company because there's uh, there just wasn't time to show it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Forrest Guth, uh, met him in person a couple of times, um, talked on the phone a half dozen times. So he is parachuting into Market Garden, into, into Holland, right? And um, the, the guys had all jumped low. I think it was under 500 feet. So he comes down, there's this malfunction in his parachute and uh, he, he, can't, he can't pull his reserve. So he comes down and he lands hard and, and he, he's knocked out. Uh, when he comes to, he, he can't feel his legs. I mean, there's something just serious, seriously wrong. So I think he gets put in a, in a, a cattle barn for three days or something like that until the Till the line moves up and finally he's uh they're able to to get him out of there and they ship him back to, to england uh turns out he's broken a disc in his back and uh, gradually he, he heals up enough just in the hospital where he can walk again but his legs are still numb you know there's there's a lot of problems still so the doctor comes to him one day and he says hey you know fantastic for us um this is your golden ticket to go home okay we're, we're putting you on the next boat back you know to america uh, congratulations, your war is over. But this speaks to the, the, the caliber uh, of the men there. Forces like, no way. I mean, my, my brothers are still on the line. There's no way I'm going to leave them there. So he busts out of the hospital, hitchhikes back to his unit, rejoins his unit right before they go and fight in, in Bastogne. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. That, that's, that's a great story. So thank you for sharing that one for sure. And so this gets us to where you actually wrote Shifty's War. Now, uh, I find Shifty a fascinating, not only a character in the miniseries, but a fascinating man, because to me, I know that Dick Winters called Bull Randall like the, mo the, the best soldier in the company kind of thing. To me, Shifty was like the consummate soldier. That he, he always did what he was asked, tremendous marksman, but he was the least stereotypical uh, to me. I mean, I was spent four years in the Airborne. Most of my audience are paratroopers, and there's a swagger that I'm sure you're very familiar with now after interviewing all these men. And Shifty has the competence, he has the courage, but he has the uh, humility that kind of transcends any other aspect of his personality. At least that's how he's portrayed in both the book and in the miniseries. And I'm wondering if, uh, again, was that played up a bit or is that, is that truly the essence of the man? And if you could elaborate on that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, 100% uh, the man. I had the chance to talk to Shifty uh, probably a dozen times before he passed. He had cancer at the end, so his time was really short. Uh, fortunately, I was able to fly over to Klinchko. I met all his family members. Uh, pretty funny, you know, I, I flew into Klinchko. It's, it's like 11 or 12 at night. It's pretty late. Uh, middle of winter, snow is falling, and uh, Shifty's kids pick me up, and, and we sit in the airport parking lot for like an hour and just telling stories. There's just like this instant connection uh, between uh, the, the family and myself. 
they drove me out to Klinchko. Klinchko is such a, a small town. There's not even a hotel, a motel in the town, right? They, they rent a room above like the museum, you know? So that's where I stayed. And that town uh, speaks to who Shifty was. Humble roots, a small uh, coal mining town. And, and he, he grew up a uh, self-described, uh, quote, hillbilly in the holler. Uh, you know, so he's growing up and, and they're, they're shooting squirrels as kids because that's one of the family's main food supplies. Um, so he grew up um, uh, always shooting. Uh, he, he knew his stuff and, and some of his humility, I think, stemmed from his confidence. Like he, he knew how to move through the woods. Uh, his father was an excellent shot. That part of the, of the miniseries was right on. And his father taught him to, uh, to, to feel the forest. I mean, listen, listen for the rain on, 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 the, on the trees, listen for the, the snow to crunch underneath your, your, your feet, uh, feel what's happening around you and, and see everything in this sort of 360 degree arc all around you. So Shifty genuinely was a fantastic soldier. He knew his stuff. But because of his roots and just his personality, it's like, you know, I don't have to prove who I am. I'm not trying to be famous. I'm just, uh, I want to do my job and do it well. And then I want to go home. And that was his, that was his, uh, the way he operated. So in the, the, the opportunities you did get to speak with him, once again, I'm always looking for the story behind the story. Was there any aspect of Shifty that, folks might want to learn more about that again because of space or editing did it make it into the book hmm. um the yeah shifty i, I really uh, I, and I use this term carefully but I, I grew to love the guy and the times i talked with him and he was so like he he would phone me which is really rare we talked once or twice i interviewed him in a, in a kind of a small way for we were live remain and then he would call me just to say uh you know how's the book doing and then he would want to know about my life, which was just amazing. Like there was a genuine um, empathy, compassion, politeness, uh, heartfelt uh, expression of his, of his persona. So he's, he's a really big reader. And um, toward the end of his life, he would, you know, he, he wasn't doing well with his health. And he would, uh, he would listen to books on tape pretty much all day long. And, and, and he loved peanut butter cookies. And so he, that was like one of the few things he could eat toward the end uh, when, when the cancer was really bad. So he, he'd call me up or I'd call him and usually he would, he'd call me and I'd say, you know, Shifty, uh, is today a good day for you or is today a not so good day? And he was really honest. He would say, you know, I'm just, I'm not feeling great today, but I'm eating a cookie and I'm listening to a book on tape and, uh, and that's good. So we, we talked about different books, you know, he, he loved uh, Louis L'Amour, you know, sort of the classic Westerns. One of his favorite books uh, to listen to was the Bible. He had listened to the Bible front and back on tape. And then um, if he had a good day, I would say, you know, Shifty, what does a good day look like for you? And he would say, uh, well, I, I, I was able to go and fire my rifle today. And so when I actually got to Clinchco, that story was he, he lived in a, in a kind of a rural area. And he would go off his, his back porch and he had targets set up off his back porch. And that was one of his favorite thing to do, just target practice. 
uh, off his front porch. So actually, when I got to his house, I was able to to, sh to fire his M1 uh, at, at a target, which was pretty cool to you know hold the actual rifle that that, that shifted that held. So. That is amazing. Now, I've had the opportunity to speak with other folks who've either written about the Banner Brothers or uh, descendants, uh, as you know, George Lewis Jr., for example. And I, I always ask this question, I try to be sensitive of it, but there's been a, a variety of responses. Uh, when I spoke with uh, Marianne Malarkey, for example, I know her dad dealt with the consequences of the war for a long time and he found some healing later in life. Uh, George says his dad didn't appear to have, have too many, many difficulties. Did Shifty was he able to make peace with what he had done as a paratrooper or did he have to have some struggles before he was able to find some inner calm? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, many of the men in that generation that came home and they just simply, uh, they, they didn't talk. They didn't talk about what had taken place. And it was kind of the, the um, macho culture um a culture of, of masculinity that that doesn't talk about what's happening inside that coupled with this this national um celebration man we just won the war so why do you want to talk about something bad that's happening or maybe something you know the nightmares that are you that you're having i mean you know you come home you buy the refrigerator you buy the house, you get married, you start having babies by the dozen. I mean, this is the post-war generation, right? So talking about, um, you know, stuff that you went through just wasn't on the radar. So Shifty, like so many guys, just kept kept it stuffed down, stuffed down, stuffed down. And he talks about how he, um, he, he lost a lot of confidence after the war. Like when you're with your buddies and uh, there's sort of this feeling like, man, you are 10 feet tall and, and bulletproof, right? And then you come home and it's just like, I don't know, I like, you know, driving over to the, the nearby town, like that became hard for him. I don't want to go, I don't want to go drive an hour to go see my sister because I don't know, I just, I don't want to leave my town. And, and when I probed him a bit on that, on that question, it was like, well, I don't want to leave the security of, of what I'm experiencing here. So um, he eventually did talk and uh, he had a great wife, Dorothy, who really helped him a lot. He got active in his, in his church and that really helped. Uh, he was actually baptized quite late in life, I think uh, 45 or 50, uh, when he just kind of went, you know, I need a fresh start to everything. And, uh, and so he talked to his pastor and baptism, baptism was like one of the ways he just, that was like symbolic to him, to him as much as anything. I want to I want to start new and start fresh. So he, he eventually did talk a lot and got through that and regained his confidence and went on to live a, a really good life. So, No, that's amazing. That, that, that's a fantastic story. So after Shifty, uh, you're pretty much done with the Band of Brothers, but you haven't left the genre of military biography. And that kind of, I'm sure there were other projects, but I'm really anxious to talk about Blaze of Light and uh, the story of Gary Biker. Could you tell me how that, did your agent bring you that one? Or did, how did you meet Gary? Yeah, Gary, it was just being at the right time at the right place. Um, and, and it's amazing how many books kind of come that way where, you know, I'm talking to this guy, and he knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. This, this, uh, with with Gary's story, this guy had called me up and just asked me if he could talk about uh, a book that he wanted to write. So we were talking about that, and uh, and and then 
everything kind of wrapped up when he started talking about who did he know and who did I know and the stories of different guys. He started telling me about this this Green Beret who had come home from Vietnam and then and then lived in a cave. And I was just like, what? I mean, tell me more. And and so um, I fortunately Gary Biker he kept a, this uh, a pretty robust presence on on uh, social media. So. I looked him up and I uh, just sent him this uh, this email, just absolutely cold, introducing myself, talking about this friend of a friend. And I said, um, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And he was like, you know, he responded like right away. And he goes, my wife and I have just been talking about this going, time is short and, and we're, you know, we're sort of in the last, the last season here and it's time for me to write a book. So it was just amazing fortuitous time in there that that's fantastic now backtracking just briefly when we talk about band of brothers most folks especially who watch the podcast they, they've read the books they've seen the movies so we can go right into talking about personalities can you give a little thumbnail about gary so people know that obviously special forces uh medal of honor recipient i believe it was what april of 1970 uh that he was uh, his team was came under uh, attack and he earned the medal of honor as a special forces medic correct Correct. Yeah. Could you give a little bit more, just a background on the battle, or background on the the acts that won him the Medal of Honor? I know. I mean, I know a lot of people don't like the term "one" tied to the Medal of Honor, for which he received the Medal of Honor. Awarded. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's nothing you win, uh, and and he made that clear with me. There was a learning curve to the Medal of Honor uh, Society as well. So um, he is a Green Green Beret Special Forces medic. Um, and he, uh, again, a pretty soft-spoken guy, uh, definitely didn't get into the battle to, you know, sort of shoot him up or whatever. He wanted to go there to help people, um, and, and he was definitely trained in weapons and sort of, you know, new stuff there. Um, but very compassionate guy. So he, he is sent uh, to this little village called Dak Sang in Vietnam's Central Highlands region. It's a strategic village because it's pretty close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is the main north-south uh, supply route there for the communists. So everybody's kind of watching this village. I mean, the enemy's watching this village. Uh, the Americans are watching this village. Um, the, the, the villagers are watching this village. Everybody's watching it. And he's there for, uh, for months. Months go by, and uh, Dak Sang is this, this jungle Shangri-La, he describes it, like he, he's the main medic there, and there's 12 Green Berets in that village, about four, 400 Montagnard fighters, which is the indigenous uh, fighting force there, and then about 2,300 women and children who are like, like the wives and the kids of, of the Montagnard fighters. So he becomes the main medic there, and he's, he's doing everything. He is the doctor at age 22, right? He is delivering babies. He's giving tetanus shots, helping snake bites. I mean, you know, whatever it is, and, and the villagers love him. I mean, it finally, sort of, somebody has come to help them out, and and they want the Green Berets there, and that's a pretty interesting dynamic because Vietnam is a, it, it, you know, it's kind of a cloudy war, but the 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 Montagnard tribes, uh, in the enemy's eyes, they were an inferior race, were seen as an inferior race, and the enemy had vowed to wipe the Montagnards off the face of the map. Okay, so they are welcoming all the support they can get, and they are literally in this fight for their survival. So they want the Green Berets there. So anyway, they, they're loving Gary, and for a number of months, all is just 
summer camp. I mean, Gary's talking about, uh, you know, they, they set up a, a volleyball net, you know, and, and all the kids there, they, they take the kids down swimming uh, in, in the, the river. They're, they're, they set up a sheet and they're showing John Wayne movies at night on the projector. I mean, it's just great. And, and um, Gary felt he had, he had grown up in a, a family without his dad and stuff and, uh, and, and moved a lot as a kid. And so he really felt this sense of acceptance. They made Gary an honorary tribes member uh, and, and held a ceremony for, for him there. They, they, so he was really had, had felt this love and then kind of turned around and felt uh, this sense of, uh, I have to fight for these people that I've come to love. So um, April 1st, 1970, uh, just before dawn, what had happened is that during the night, uh, the enemy had surrounded this camp completely secret. And just as dawn breaks, the enemy, and it's like 10,000, literally 10,000 enemy forces had surrounded this little village. And they just start to, to shell it, just shell the crap out of it. And it's incoming and, and just absolute chaos in this village. And you got to remember, there's, you know, women and little kids in this village and everybody's taking a pounding. So Gary is chief medic and it's his job to, uh, to help everybody in his sight. And uh, he, he's sort of running here and running there and trying to help this person, that person. And he gets hit and then gets hit again and then gets hit a third time. Bam, bam, bam. He's hit in his back, his stomach, his hip. I mean, his, he is out for the count. He's paralyzed from the waist down. This bullet lodges right next to his spine. And he can't walk. I mean, he is out for the count. So here's this, this amazing part of the story. Lying in the dirt. Uh, intestines literally like hamburger hanging outside of his body and he calls these two helpers to him and he says I've still got a job to do carry me carry me so they they literally undergird him in his shoulders and they're dragging him around the battlefield from one wounded person to another and that's how he keeps doing his job that's how he keeps administering aid on the battlefield I'm going to help this guy. Okay, drag me to the next one by one by one. So that's what he wins the Medal of Honor for. He's awarded the Medal of Honor. That's absolutely amazing. Now, obviously, with wounds of that nature, and it's also, for me, an exciting part of the book, he, he has to be evacuated at some point. And if I recall, uh, you kind of get into it right from the beginning that the evacuation wasn't going so well. And they, uh, several aircraft were lost trying to get men out. How, how did, was he eventually evacuated out of the post yeah so it's uh it, it's a pretty pretty hairy situation and uh, the first two helicopters uh don't don't make it um but finally the third one does and it's uh, it's like six seconds or 10 seconds of a landing i mean uh the the helicopter comes straight down and the guy's counting the pilot's counting and he's like okay if you don't get this guy on the copter uh, on the chopper before this time is up, we're leaving without everybody. And fortunately, they, they're able to kind of literally throw Gary into the helicopter and get out of there and just a absolutely crazy time. And so I, I'm assuming he was evacuated, not, you know, he has to go through, you know, evacuation hospital, et cetera, but back to Japan and then eventually to the United States. How long was he in uh, long-term recovery and therapy from all those wounds? 
Yeah, I think it was about a year and a half. Um, and, and he's pretty beat up. Um, the, one of his, the amazing parts of his story happens in the hospital because he is, he is wavering uh, in and out of death. And um, it's, it's pretty funny. So Gary had, had said, you know, when I was in college, I partied to a certain extent and I, I knew what it was like to black out, you know, from like drinking too much. But he said the, the type of blackout that was happening to me in the hospital was way different because it was a darkness blackout. It was a death blackout. It's like I was, I was wavering between life and death and I knew it. And so uh, he, he's such a self-sufficient guy and he's green beret. And uh, the whole point of his training is be prepared for everything, uh, face every challenge uh, fearlessly. Uh, you know, you're, you're the man, you're, you're the self-sufficient man. So he's in the hospital and he goes, I, I could handle anything life gave me, but I couldn't handle whatever death gave me. And, and when he was blacking out, um, so darkly he went, um, and then he'd come back and it was just like, I, I can't handle the idea of dying. So, um, one day this, uh, this chaplain comes along and sits down next to Gary's bed and Gary's just coming to, and, and, uh, the, the chaplain says, you know, I've been coming by your, by your bed for the last couple of days here and you've been out of it, but now I, I see you're, you're awake. Uh, would you like to talk? And, uh, so they talk a little bit. And Gary is not a religious guy at all. I mean, he is never, uh, you know, sort of dark in the door of a church. But the chaplain asks him uh, if, if he would like to pray. And Gary is like, pray? I, I don't know how to pray. Who do I pray to? I've never prayed in my life. And uh, the chaplain says, well, that's okay, son. God knows how to listen. So Gary prays right there. He, he just prays, you know, like, I don't want to die, <laughs> that type of thing. And uh, it's certainly not a polished prayer, but Gary says that was a turning point uh, when he started looking beyond himself and, uh, and this, this sort of this very tiny seed of faith uh, was born in his life where he went, okay, if there is a God out there, uh, maybe this God has kept me alive for a reason. So I want to discover this. And fortunately, that was the start of a, a pretty big turning point in Gary's life. Uh, where he uh, pursued that path later on, uh, eventually did make a full healing, regained the use of his legs. And today, uh, Gary is, in fact, the, the chaplain of the Medal of Honor Society. So faith is a pretty big uh, piece of his journey. That's, a, that's absolutely amazing. Now, you had mentioned when you first heard about him, there was a point in time in which he was residing in a cave. What were, how, did that, how did that even come about on his journey? Uh, I'm, yeah, so he comes, comes home from the States, and uh, you know, he's got this seed of faith in his life, but his life is pretty messy still. I mean, it's uh, Gary describes sort of how he, he came to Jesus in, in pieces. You know, there wasn't sort of a one big come to Jesus moment. It was <laughs> kind of a step by step by step. So he comes back to the States, um, uh, heals up some more, and then uh, goes back to university. And his initial task is he wants to become a doctor. Uh, because of his medical training. So he's, he's enrolled in university. And unfortunately, like so many, uh, you know, military personnel from that generation, uh, it's just simply not a great time to be a veteran in, in the United States. So uh, he literally gets harassed for being a veteran on, on the campus of his university. And, uh, you know, he is pushed in the hallway, his books are 
pushed off his desk. He is uh, spit upon, literally spit upon. There's this one pretty horrendous scene in the book where he's in his van uh, in the university parking lot and somehow uh, this, this sort of small group of uh, angry students finds out that he's there and, and they, they surround the van and begin to push it. And then kind of everybody joins in and this small little cadre of angry students becomes a, a pretty angry mob taking out their fury on, on this guy who has saved lives back in Vietnam. So, um, and they're shoving the van and pushing it and yelling at him. And, you know, again, Gary's this, this green beret. And so if he had gotten out of his van, I'm sure he could have handled himself and at least gotten a few good punches in, but he doesn't. Uh, he just, you know, sort of gently backs out of the, of the mob and takes off. But he's shaken, he's shaken in spirit. And he, he's just like, I, I, I can't handle the pressure of, of the culture right now. And so he decides to, uh, to tune in, drop out, you know, it's kind of the lingo of the day. He packs uh, a little rucksack, he's got his guitar, he's got his journal, he's got the, uh, the you know, the works of Thoreau and, uh, you know, Walden Pond and whatnot, and Gary decides just to get out of there. So he hikes far out into the northern Appalachians, and he finds this cave. And he finds that when he is out in the wilderness, it is kind of the, the, the one time where his soul relaxes and he can find his bearings. And so he's just like, you know, if, if the only time in my life right now is when I'm out in the wilderness, I'm going to stay out in the wilderness. So he, he, he eventually he lives in this cave for like a year and a half. And I mean, it's, it's a literal, uh, you know, four or three and a half walls and, and, and uh, a stone ceiling. And he's cooking his meals over a fire and he's bathing in the stream and, and he's it's full on cave living. I'm assuming his training was able to help him make it somewhat livable compared to your average American who might be dropped off in the middle of the Appalachians. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he spends two winters in this cave. Uh, but because he's a Green Beret, he's like, well, you know, I, I bundled up, but I got some, uh, you know, some extra insulation and whatnot. And, uh, but yeah, like two winters in the mountains in a cave. I mean, that's what he does. That's, that's pretty impressive. And so when he sort of emerges from the mountains, is that, was he, uh, was, was that, that almost like a, a clarifying experience or was he just deciding okay I gotta I gotta figure out what the next chapter was when he decides to come back to society was that with a clear mind or just looking for the next thing well a couple a couple things happen there when when he's in the cave um so he's actually he's still enrolled in, in university actually a different school at, at the time so he's coming down uh every day to every other day to attend a couple of classes and then uh, in the evenings and afternoons, evenings overnight, he'll go back and hike and, and live out in the cave. So he's still maintaining some, um, some connections with civilization. He's got this P.O. box down in a little uh, town, and he'll hike down and get his mail at this P.O. box. One day he hikes down, gets his mail, and there's a message for him in the box that says, hey, please be at this payphone uh, tomorrow at such and such a time because an important uh, phone call is coming for you. So he's like, okay, so the next day he hikes down, he's at the payphone, <clears throat> sure enough, the payphone rings, and it's the Pentagon, and they say, uh, okay, uh, are you S Sergeant Gary Bycrick, blah, 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 and he says, yes, uh, we have the pleasure of announcing to you that you have been awarded the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest and most prestigious uh, honor for acts of valor, and, and, and Gary's like, you've got to be kidding. 
but it's it's no joke. And so he goes from living in a cave, uh, literally to the White House. He's awarded this honor uh, from the president, and uh, and then flies back to, to Lancaster and hikes out into the wilderness and kind of shoves the metal into a into a duffel bag and doesn't touch it again for seven years. Goes back to living in his cave. But uh, what what actually got him out of the cave uh, was was a woman. <laughs> when, when he's down in this town, you know, getting his mail, he, he uh, some months go by, he eventually meets this young lady, uh, and her name is Lolly. And uh, Lolly's this young uh, teenage uh, single mother. She's got a, a daughter, and she's like 19, and they strike up this friendship, and the friendship blossoms into a romance. And uh, so Gary proposes. And uh, Lolly says, yep, I'll marry you, but I'm not living in the cave. <laughs> and so Gary's like, okay, I got a decision to make. Either get married and, you know, get an apartment in town or keep living in the cave and stay single. So he, uh, he makes the wiser choice, as he says, and that gets him out of the cave. That's amazing. I mean, if, if these stories, you know, Shifty story, Buck's story, Gary's story, it's like if you saw it in a movie, you'd be like, you got to be kidding me. And, the, and these men are actually living these lives. It just, it, it always blows me away. The one thing that I admire about Medal of Honor recipients is they all, they, they seem to bear the decoration for their comrades. They don't, they, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet a few and there, there's, comes back to that word you mentioned for both Shifty and Buck, there's this level of humility there. I imagine Gary also exhibits that same humility. Is he actively involved now in, well, he's the chaplain of the society, which is amazing. But is, this, is he a speaker? Does he go on on, on tour to represent the society? Um, how is he spending his time now? Yeah, and a couple of things there. So uh, one of the things where, where Gary uh, started to actually wear the medal was fellow veterans said, um, you've got to wear it for us. Uh, shine the spotlight. And, and Gary really gravitated uh, toward that idea. Um, it's not just about me, he would say, it is about every man who fought there, every woman as well. And, um, and so he wears it to shine the spotlight on, on heroic deeds um, throughout the community. So, um, and, and, and the question was again, it's about what is he doing out of day? Yeah, so Gary, um, he, was a, he became a, a, a middle school guidance counselor eventually, went and got his master's degree and uh and had a, a just a fantastic career as a guidance counselor uh students uh know him as kind of the gentle and kind uh teacher and counselor who was always there for them and and his students just um just give a lot of uh praise to who he was in his career uh after retirement um started speaking more on behalf of the society uh speaks all over the country um the book came out and then, uh, so actually he had beaten cancer. The book came out and then the cancer is now re-returned. Re so uh, right now, uh, Gary is undergoing chemo uh, pretty aggressively for pancreatic cancer. So he is, uh, you know, we speak a couple times uh, every other week or so now and we're on email all the time. And, Definitely, am keeping tabs on that. It's it's an aggressive cancer, honestly, uh, from what he says, and he's he's talked about it on social media, so it's uh, you know it's not secretive there. And uh, yeah, he just covets covets your thoughts and prayers, and, and uh, hopefully he will make it through this time as well. So 
I think I could speak for my listeners and viewers that uh, he will certainly be in our thoughts and prayers, definitely uh, mine and my family. So that's, that's just amazing. And uh, just, I really appreciate you making the time to, to share that story. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, this will motivate folks to get a copy of Blaze of Light and, and learn more about what this, uh, this amazing warrior did both as a, uh, as a special forces soldier and, and subsequently in life. Uh, prior to starting the recording, you had mentioned you're currently working on a project that takes us back to World War II, but this time in the Pacific Theater. And I'd really like to hear a little bit more about that if you're willing to share something. Yeah. So this is an exclusive to your viewership. Um, uh, just last week, I signed a contract with, uh, with, with a publisher here, and the book is tentatively titled uh, A Bright and Blinding Sun. It is the story of Joe Johnson, who is a 14-year-old enlistee in World War II. And he, uh, he's trying to escape a uh, kind of a troubled home situation. So he fibs about his, his age and, uh, and signs up for the Army. And it's, uh, it's before Pearl Harbor. So uh, the war for America really isn't on yet. And um, gets sent to the Philippines with, a, with the 31st. And, uh, and has a number of amazing adventures uh, right in Manila. And, and then Pearl Harbor breaks out. And, and so he is thrust into this um, fight for his life on Bataan and uh, is eventually uh, taken ca captive during the surrender. And so he spends many of his formative teenage years as a prisoner of war at the hands of Imperial Japan. And, uh, and that's the, the story in a nutshell, how this, how this teenager makes it through the war. That sounds fascinating. And uh, you said it should come out sometime in the early summer of 2022? Yeah, I think it's scheduled for just before Father's Day 2022 release. Yeah. So, Very yeah. cool. We'll definitely be looking for that. Uh, were you able, as you were uh, researching the story, because I believe you mentioned that Mr. Johnson is deceased and you didn't have the opportunity to interview him. Were you able to get material about his post-military life or career? Uh, or does the book end with liberation in 1945? Uh, he definitely struggled after the war. And uh, I think being a, a prisoner of war, he um, went through some really horrific things where he it just, you have to adopt such a survival mentality. Uh, he fortunately, fortunately left behind uh, a real wealth of writings and, and videotapes and recordings. I've interviewed uh, all his family and friends. Uh, and then just that period of time is, is, is well documented. So we've got a uh, real wealth of, of uh, information about his story. And uh, yeah, he did, he did struggle after the war for sure, but uh, fortunately made it through that. And uh, those who knew him in his, in his uh, latter years just talk about what a sweet and kind guy he was. He really had uh, forgiven much and, uh, and, and learned how to heal. So. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we'll definitely be looking forward to, to uh, learn more about it. And I think you'd mentioned the book's about a third of the way done now. Right now, about a third of the way done, yeah. And you're, uh, so how, if you, we come up to the end of my time here, but I would like to hear a little bit about your process as a writer. Uh, once you've got your research done and you're like, okay, now I'm going to set a schedule and I'm going to write a book. Uh, are, do, you, do you set yourself a standard that you're going to write eight hours a day or you're going to achieve, I'm going to do a thousand words today? How, how do you go about your craft, if you don't mind sharing some, some of that? Yeah, I, so a former newspaper reporter and uh, 
we were taught in the newsroom, we did a thousand research edited words a day. So that's kind of a pace that I try for. Uh, as a writer, I aim for about a chapter a week, uh, although there is flexibility in that. Um, I have three school-aged kids, so uh, the hours I keep are fairly, you know, sort of eight to five, uh, eight to five thirty, eight to six, whatever it is. Uh, so it is, uh, yeah, you know, if, if I can't get out there to go see a site, it's uh, staying in seat and working the phones and working the books and and nose to grindstone and and getting it done that way. So. That's absolutely fascinating too. Just to hear the process of of being a writer, I think that's just really cool. It's that may not appeal to all my my listeners, but I I just it gets me excited. I like to hear about that. Where uh, when you research the books, any book, and obviously you're gonna want some illustrations, some maps, and things like that. Do you request them from families? Do you go into the archives? What 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 governs the decisions of what's going to go into painting the pictures that go along with the words? Yeah, great question. Um, it's uh, it, a lot of it is my decision, although it's a decision I make in collaboration with the publisher, and in this case, uh, the estate of Joe Johnson. So uh, Joe, fortunately, left boxes and boxes of materials. So in sifting through that, I've got definitely my key pile and my discard pile, and then my maybe pile. And there's always um, sort of more information than you, than you can fit into a book. So it's amazing as well what gets left on the cutting room floor. Um, I do work with graphic designers and I've got my favorite Matt person who uh, I've done some projects with and uh, I can sort of send her a sketch and, uh, and then she'll know what to do with it. And, and there's some back and forth there. And she's really good. It's like, well, how about if we include this as well and maybe you should title that. And so, um, uh, with with photographs, it's the uh, whatever's in the family archives for sure, and then I'm also going to you know I don't know Library of Congress or whatever I can to uh, help uh, fill in gaps as well. So, so in the COVID age, are there online repositories? Because I'm assuming you can't get into the Library of Congress for the past year or so. <laughs> yeah, it's all online these days, and and phone and email and scrambling and yeah. <laughs> well, I do want to thank you on behalf of readers of military history that you have a good map person because there's nothing that you know steams my beans more than not being familiar with an area or terrain but there's not an accompanying map so it's that just that much more difficult to picture what's going on in a, a particular scenario or campaign so thank you for making sure you have a good map person i like a good map yeah <laughs> well i'm just about out of time marcus so i just want to thank you uh for coming on and sharing so much. Uh, this has been a fantastic interview. I definitely got more out of it than I anticipated uh, going into it. Uh, for my viewers and listeners, you've been listening to The Commander's Voice. My guest today was Marcus Brotherton. Uh, he's got a very exciting project coming out in uh, 2022. And the name of that book one more time, Marcus, is? Working title right now is A, Bl a Bright and Blinding Sun. So definitely keep an eye out for A, a Bright and Blinding Sun, but also uh, he's as we discussed during the entire interview, he's got a plethora of books out there. I highly recommend A Blaze of Light. It's uh, my most recent read and I'm really enjoying it. So Marcus, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Ben.